2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Santo reporting to you from his office after dark. Your friendly infectious disease doctor, pediatric infectious disease doctor, and
3: researcher. Josh and Santosh in the evening. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're not going to get sued for that. I hope not. But that's, that has such a great ring to it. Dr. Josh has been getting into community, which I, I absolutely love.
3: It You know, I'm bringing it back. In a terrible segue, speaking yeah. of things that are also coming back, <laughs> old diseases.
1: That should basically have no right to come back at this point.
3: Mm hmm. Yeah. So the latest one (laughs) is a young boy in Oregon. Now, folks, I thought we had this settled. You die on the Oregon Trail. The game ends when you make it to Oregon. That's a happy ever after right there.
1: (laughs) That is they receive you and you get that beautiful little eight bit graphic. It's it's a fun time. You
3: didn't ford those rivers, lose half, lose grandpa to dysentery, (laughs) um, hunt the buffalo to extinction, all to get to Oregon and not vaccinate. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, losing kids and lives and everything to perfectly preventable diseases.
3: So the perfectly preventable disease of the week...
1: is um, <laughs> not measles, but to everybody's surprise. It's
3: not. No, no. In fact, it's tetanus. This week, we're also bringing back another old segment that a few of you have missed. Around the world... In 80 plagues! <laughs> flashy graphic. Um,
1: it's, a, it's an audio medium, Josh.
3: Okay. Well, blame your imagination, not mine. But this week, we're going to cover its overall family, the Clostridium bacteria.
1: Yeah, this is this is the genus that clostridium falls under, and it falls under the greater umbrella of anaerobes, those bacteria that thrive in the absence of oxygen.
3: It comes from the Greek for closter or spindle, which is also a variant of clotho, who was one of the three fates of the Greeks. Oh so cool, it, I
1: didn't know that.
3: So, you know, these things can cut your life quite short. If they go untreated.
1: Yeah. In fact, uh, if they become septic, a lot of these clostridia, if they get into bloodstream and this kind of thing, uh, Josh, I hope you never have to see this disease, but it is one of the fastest kind of, it causes one of the fastest mortality from start to finish in any person that I've ever seen.
3: And that's why this organ case was, was so scary. But there are actually four main kinds of clostridium that we worry about in the human world. And those are, they might actually be familiar to you. They're clostridium botulinum. That's right. That's the same one yeah. as Botox.
1: It's the same exact one. Yeah. So a lot of you guys who, who've who been getting your cosmetic surgery might know that one.
3: There's clostridium tetani, which is, of course, the one that causes tetanus. Mm-hmm. Clostridium perfringens, which we'll get to later, but is both very inconsequential and also equally deadly. So that'll <laughs> we'll touch on it uh, in a and, bit.
1: No, no, and Josh, <laughs> I think only you can put both of those into like one.
3: <laughs> it's a one very line. it's a very versatile bug, and it of is, course, yeah. C. Diff, the hot new kid on the block, the Justin Bieber's of the Clostridiums. <laughs> Although the beams is is getting old. But let's take it one by one.
1: Actually, one of the first anaerobes that were discovered was Clostridium butyricum. And this was all the way in 1862 by Louis Pasteur. And he started to grow bacteria in the absence of oxygen. And then all of these, you know, really cool guys, Veillon, Zuber, who were at the Faculty of Medicine in Paris um, throughout the 1890s, started finding these bacterias in things like pelvic infection, in brain abscesses, lung gangrene, and appendicitis. And then um, tetanus was found in pure culture by 1890. And that was one of the first things that we immunized against because we could isolate the toxin and create a component uh, vaccine against them. And then, Josh, believe it or not, there were like waves of interest in anaerobes, like it would come and it would go. It was like a karma chameleon. I'd like to credit two American surgeons, Mulaney and Dr. Altemeyer. It um, would be ooh. easy
3: if your colors were like my dreams.
1: <laughs> like gas gangrene. Like
3: gas, like gas gangrene. Green.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So 1920s, uh, they were looking at uh synergistic gas gangrene, which was called Mulaney synergistic gangrene um, because of the doctor who found it. And then there was another wave of interest in 1940s and 1960s. And actually, Dr. Sidney Feingold in, you know, through the 1960s, who's out here in California, um, found a potential uh, for a role for one of our favorite antibiotics, which is clindamycin. And now, of course, in this day and age, bringing it all back around, the interest of anaerobes is because of our microbiome our gut bacteria because that's where most of the anaerobic bacteria live so yeah that's a short history of like all the way back from like when we first isolated the first clostridia all the way to where we are today
3: let's get into them we'll start with one that we actually don't see nearly as often as an infectious disease anymore more as a cosmetic choice and that's c, <laughs> c. botulinum what caused botulinum? What named botulinum? Bloodwurst.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. This was one of the first cases. It was in Germany, and it was like poorly processed sausage, right?
3: Yeah. So, well, it's it came up a couple times in waves through Germany. And the very first doctor to, to kind of write about it was a German physician and poet. Every account I found of this guy made a point of emphasizing that. It's like, you know, don't forget. <laughs> The German people have beauty and their soul too.
1: Yeah. I I would like to say the German people are a very sweet and poetic people. I, I agree with that.
3: So Justinus Kerner was a German physician and poet, and mm-hmm. he was also known by his patients as the absolute worst. That's worse That's worst in terms of sausage.
1: Yeah, that's the W-U-R-S-T with the little umlaut over the U.
3: Because of his work with the mysterious sausage poison that was an outbreak of end time. So he wrote up a couple case reports in 1817 and 1820 that described some of the symptoms, which we'll talk about shortly. And then it kind of faded from the public view for a while until another outbreak came up in 1895 in the small town of Elzelelzen. Wait no, El, Else El's is frozen. No, El Elza Sure, sure. Um,
1: in a small town Alice Alice Ellison
3: in a small town in uh, Belgium. I, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thirty four musicians of a local band had a meal at the inn after playing at a funeral. Following,
1: and you know they were playing a polka. From 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 from.
3: But it would have to have a sad trombone. Womp, womp,
1: uh, womp, womp,
3: womp, womp. womp.
1: uh, Oh, is the sad trombone because of botulism?
3: Or the funeral. But following the funeral meal, (laughs) the musicians began to experience a number of visual disturbances, such as their eyelids drooping, double vision, and their pupils dilating, along with generalized weakness, difficulty swallowing, speaking, and more importantly, breathing. Uh, a few a few of them also experienced constipation but that you know was not immediately oh. apparent
1: right right that's probably like when you can't breathe but you're a little constipated you're probably not really paying attention to the fact that you're constipated
3: now this may not sound too bad initially but 3 of those musicians died over the subsequent week and everybody suspected food poisoning and the most likely suspect was the ham
1: <laughs> ha it's such a ham right
3: Quit hogging all the good puns.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I'm being a little uh, boring.
3: Such a pig. Anyway, anaerobic bacteria <laughs> were isolated from the suspect ham and the organs of the dead victims. So it was felt that the ham was probably infected during the preservation or slaughter, but had not been killed. The bacteria hadn't been killed by the brine. And the doctor who made this discovery and looked... I'm sorry, there's no way I can stop from mispronouncing his name, is Dr. Emil Van Erm yeah, Erminger! Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, er- Erminger. <laughs> I discovered Ermingen.
3: Clostridium.
1: Stop it. Stop it. Uh, Dr. Emil von Ermingen.
3: <laughs> he gives me gersberms. <laughs> all right. Um. All right, so. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs> it's like one of the great, pillars of microbiology in our history and you're just you're going to remember name. it F- fine yes so yes, from now on
3: dr emil named the bacterium bacillus botulinum and that's from the latin botulus that means sausage because all the symptoms that were observed were very similar to those of a syndrome that had been described throughout germany and associated with eating sausage
1: yeah and josh I wanted to tell you one thing that maybe you didn't know. So, you know, we had outbreaks of botulism for like poorly preserved food in various places. But hey, did you know that one of the reasons that we have our food regulation today, the food safety system is because of botulism? So we started canning food in the uh, 19th century in France, and that moved over to America in 1825. But the problems that we were having is that we would have spoilage because our canning process wasn't as good as we could. So imagine this, you sealed in the food, but you didn't have enough heat and pressure to actually kill all the bacteria and seal it really, really well. So what happened was a little of these Clostridia got in and now they were in an anaerobic environment so they could thrive um, because like the canning seal was weak or it wasn't processed long enough. So in the 19 uh, 1919 and 1920, we had these outbreaks where 18 people died in Ohio, Michigan and New York and the National Canners Association and the California Canners League actually sprang into action. Before they could have like media coverage of the debts and stuff, they started forming a botulism commission and got scientific papers published and everything else and created the standards of canning that we have today so we don't get botulism. And in fact,
3: everybody's always afraid of getting botulism from canned food. But as long as you don't home can low acid foods, it really shouldn't be much of a mm -hmm. problem. The CDC has a really fancy foodborne illness database that I'll link in the show notes. And there's only about 145 cases of botulism each year. And only about 15% of those are from food. Most of the rest are from infants yeah. and in, in honey. And that's because bees naturally collect spores when they gather nectar and then mix the bacteria in with their honey. Yep. And babies don't have a strong enough immune system Please. to handle it.
1: So we actually regularly ingest like small amounts of Clostridium botulinum spores when we have honey, especially if it's unpasteurized. However, babies, you know, just can't take it. So we're not supposed to give our little babies like under a year of age, honey. The other big source, Josh, is actually just from the soil. So a lot of people will have foodborne or airborne botulism because they're next to something like a construction site. The botulism spores from the soil somehow get a little bit airborne and landed like mouths and food and stuff
3: and like that. The rest of the cases that are not food or honey are wound botulism. Uh, and a lot of those are injections of black tar heroin.
1: Please don't inject black tar heroin. Yes.
3: So an attempt okay. was made back in World War II to weaponize botulism. And you might be asking, really? I mean, we, you're telling me something that you have ends up in jars of honey? Well, let me break it down for you. Botulinum toxin is the most acutely toxic substance known to man with Four kilograms or just about nine pounds of the stuff would be enough to kill every single human alive. A mere ten grams, (laughs) a mere ten grams of it could take out Los Angeles.
1: We're talking about a lethal dose for human beings on a nanogram. So
3: before you start, you know, closing your windows and barring your doors. Let's talk about why that program didn't quite work out. <laughs> the, the absolutely yeah. ludicrous reason, right?
1: And like, what? Like, why aren't we all like get like going like floppy, paralyzed, so. and falling over right now?
3: Everything I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. I don't even need to joke about it. It's too ludicrous. Back to the newscaster (laughs) announcer voice. (laughs) During World War II, the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, uh, the OSS, developed a plan for Chinese prostitutes to assassinate high-ranking Japanese officers with whom they sometimes consorted in occupied cities. Now, concealing traditional weapons like daggers or guns on the women would be obviously difficult. Therefore they prepared little gelatin capsules like, you know, NyQuil gel caps, less than the size of a head of a common pin containing a lethal dose of botulinum toxin. You know, the capsule could be stuck behind the ear, or hidden in the scalp hair and then slipped into the officers' food or drink, and the normal background of how botulism presents would then deflect suspicion that the officers had been poisoned, or at least by the women. So, the U.S. said, we're going to convince women in occupied cities to secretly poison high-ranking officers using botulism.
1: Although, to be fair, Josh, I'm sure that, like, our officers and everything were really, really concerned about the health of their. Like, You're right. They guys. were
3: concerned. When um, these capsules were shipped to Chungking, yeah. China, the Navy detachment there didn't want to take anything for granted. And I'm assuming that meant the health of these uh, women. So they tested oh, okay. the capsules. Oh, I was being sarcastic. So they tested the capsules on stray donkeys.
1: Oh, oh.
2: And the donkeys
3: oh. lived.
1: Okay.
3: Now, this is where oh. we get your conspiracy twist. All right?
1: Okay, okay.
3: Lovell, Stanley Lovell, the head of the OSS, was informed that the capsules were faulty because the donkeys lived on what were supposed to be lethal doses, and the project was abandoned. As mm-hmm. the story goes, much later when he learned donkeys are one of the few living creatures immune to botulism. This is the one thing I could not find a reliable secondary source on. So if true, if true, oh, and clearly that was... Yeah. The thought, you know, either they're immune or this is not a lethal dose The things are faulty. But this whole project was abandoned because those donkeys lived.
1: Oh, my God.
3: Are donkeys (laughs) actually immune? I couldn't find anything. I found that horses are very susceptible to botulinum. But donkeys and mules, it seems they do catch it, just not often. So true, not true. I don't know.
1: The toxin binds to, you know, our motor neurons, right? These motor neurons are quite similar amongst mammals. So that's why, you know, many mammals can be vulnerable. It would be quite strange if out of all of them, like donkeys or mules have some sort of weird immunity. However, there are like chomping big pieces of like soil and grass. So I wonder if like ruminants do have some ability to, you know, not get uh botulism. But I genuinely I have no idea. I'm a human doctor. I'm a it, Jim, to, like, I'm a human doctor.
3: Not an apocalypse <laughs> yeah. vet. Alright. Um yeah, so anyway, yeah, yeah. I just thought this story was bonkers that the only reason we did not attempt to slip, you know, Botox into Japanese officer drinks was because the donkeys didn't actually kick yeah. the bucket. So now let's.
1: <laughs> well, uh, but I'm kind of glad for that donkey. I don't want. I also weaponized.
3: don't. Because let's talk about Botox very briefly. So we all know that because it has this effect of paralyzing motor neurons uh, in the lungs, very very dangerous. In the face, apparently very, very sexy. Sure, it's,
1: it's very sexy yeah, when you just right? don't
3: move your face. All those emotions are so difficult.
1: I mean, that's the first thing that but I look this... for. No, no, I, I can't do this anymore. Santosh, Botox <laughs> travels
3: around the country like the nuclear football. Okay. When traveling, All right. All right. a baby aspirin size amount of powdered toxin is enough to make the global supply of Botox for a year. That tiny little bit, that baby aspirin-sized nugget, comes from a larger primary source sure, that sure. is locked down somewhere in the U.S., which no one who is not a very carefully supervised list of government and company officials knows where that is. Occasionally, okay. we don't know how often, some of the toxin, we don't know how much, is shipped in secrecy to a lab in Irvine for research. Even less frequently, some of it is transported by private jet with armed guards to the plant in Ireland. This is... Why has there not been a James Bond movie about Botox yet?
1: Yeah, (laughs) Well, so I'm sure it's been used somewhere. I mean, The the famous one, you know, for assassination techniques is ricin, right? They get poked and, you know, they just fall over. But the cool thing and the reason that botulism works so, so well is the symptoms are kind of nonspecific, right? People get weak. It's not later on until they actually get floppy, like the muscle tone actually goes down because the, you know, the nerves are disrupted. So it takes quite a while for that to happen. The The disease advances over time. So the assassin can get far away, you know, so it's it's quite devious. I imagine that, you know, if the Department of Defense and I know this stuff about botulism, it may be disawaited that, you know, to be used in like Mission Impossible and James Bond. I'm just,
3: you know, you're going to see Tom Cruise eating from a jar of honey. And then stand up with this big old panicked look on his face and take off running. So let's talk about <laughs> it. So if you see floppy babies Maybe, yeah. or somebody has developed right. uh, botulism, what do you do for them?
1: Yeah. So this is something that we, we don't treat very often. You know, we, we treat them from time to time. So here's what you got to do. You diagnose it clinically, but you don't wait for any tests to come back. And the way that you actually get the test is you send off the stool to the CDC and they run very specific uh, tests to look for the toxin and for the bacteria in the stool. In the meanwhile, you actually order antitoxin, you order immune globulin. The old stuff used to be quite toxic to use because it was from horses, but the modern ones are human derived immunoglobulin or antibody against the toxin and you inject it. And, uh, that, Antibody goes and it binds the botulism toxin. Immune system is able to grab those complexes of antibody and toxin and destroy it. In the meanwhile, you actually don't give antibiotics uh, to the the child. You know, you you have to let them just kind of poop everything out because the the bacteria lives in the gastrointestinal tract. Support them clinically if they get have trouble breathing or anything like that. And you wait for them to recover. It's just a waiting game. And that's what sucks the most about it.
3: That's it for botulinum. But, you know, you're getting a couple bonus plagues because we're really talking about all the clostridium, which should, by the end of this episode, give you a little bit of claustrophobia. <laughs>
1: yeah, let's, let's go from super floppy to super <laughs> stiff. Just... just- and you, you make the new You innuendos. can't make it
3: that easy. It's not fair. It takes the fun out of it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not always that easy, you know. You got to be in the right mood.
3: Let's move on to talk about C. Titani. <laughs> Titani. because in 1884, Italians. St-
1: well, I have to like correct Titani. your pronunciation again. Titani. You do. You do the Super Italian Mario.
3: Italian scientists Mario and Luigi. No, no. Antonio Carlo. Uh, Antonio Carla <laughs> and Giorgio Retone. The two Italian scientists <laughs> managed to take. From a fatal case of acne and injected into rabbits and reproduce all the symptoms of tetanus, the same symptoms that were seen in this young organ donor. No, wait, this young organ recipient. No, wait, this young child in the state of Oregon. There we go. Aha!
1: I so was wondering when you were going to get there. <laughs> that <laughs> That is worth it. that, of that.
3: course, is tetanus. So, well, let's go into some of the details briefly. Tetanus is unlike a lot of bacteria in that the disease it provokes is not really an infection, but it's an intoxication because the bacteria produce a little poison, and that poison is what does you in. It's not... The bacteria itself, and that poison that it's pumping out, yeah. tetanospasm, tetanospasm, uh, acts a lot like strychnine, which we've talked about in probably mm-hmm. a Halloween episode, and it blocks your inhibitory neurotransmitters, so your nerves just fire continuously, leading to these spasming muscles, and everything is always on, stretched and taut, and that's actually where tetanus comes from, uh, the Greek word for stretch
1: this is the the polar opposite of botulism you kind of you know bend backwards like a bow you can get a rictus a grin tetanic rictus can you know stretch from ear to ear it almost look like the joker really scary joker smile, you can get so stiff and spasmic that you could potentially break your own bones.
3: Now, generalized tetanus is the most common type. And that's about 80% of cases. And when I say 80%, I mean in places where they don't really have vaccines readily available, presents in a descending pattern. So the first sign tends to be Lock jaw as the muscles of the mouth begin nonstop firing and your jaw becomes clenched. This can also be followed by that joker grin that Santosh was talking about, which then leads to difficulty swallowing, breathing, rigidity of chest and leg muscles. And then you start getting spasms. So you have these huge you archer back and you have these huge coughing fits. And finally, your lungs spasm so much you simply can't breathe and you die. And this posture that you see is a very well-known posture. It's known as opistatonis. You're arched with your limbs all splayed out, and there's paintings of it. It's so well-recognized and agonizing by, I believe, a Charles Bell.
1: Yeah, you can look him up. That bowed, kind of, you know, bending backwards type of posture, uh, Josh, that happens because all of your muscles are spasming, in the generalized case, but what tends to happen is that your back muscles are actually much, much stronger than your abdominal and chest muscles. So that's why, you know, they just antagonize and they pull back stronger.
3: How do you diagnose tetanus? Well, unfortunately, you kind of have to just see the symptoms because there's no blood tests available to diagnose it. And it doesn't really depend on isolating the bacterium, which is really only recovered from wounds in about thirty percent of cases. As we said, it's not the bacteria that gets you, it's their toxin or poison that they're leaving behind. One of the ways you can test for it, and I've never gotten to do this, but it sounds it sounds like it'd be fun from the name. It probably wouldn't be as amusing from the patient end yeah, the spatula. This test. is
1: really, really mean.
3: And you reach in to the yeah. posterior pharyngeal wall, so the back of the throat, where the but uvula where is the right, hanging and you go with a soft-tipped there. instrument at against yeah. that back wall, and then you go, boop! You boop it. Oh. And if they yeah, bite down zombie-style yeah. on the spatula, that's a positive result, and uh, that's an indication that <laughs> yeah, you've got tetanus. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and in this day and age, that's a lawsuit, because they're going to break teeth. And they're going to say, did you do that for a doctor? So essentially, um, all the sensory inputs are... Are turned up to eleven. So if you shout or make a loud noise in the room, then all the muscles will spasm. If you tickle the back of the throat, you'll get a spasm. But if you have a normal gag reflex, someone will open their throat because the opening muscles, you know, are are, are dominating the, those to open your mouth and kind of have that gag sensation, like you're going to throw up. But your muscles to bite down are much stronger. Than the muscles to open your jaw. So, in a positive spatula test, if you have tetanus, those muscles will spasm and dominate and they will bite rather than open their mouth and gag on the spatula.
3: Our gut reaction. Our gut reaction is
1: something like that. I don't know. Take. Yeah,
3: it's a a mean. So, you don't want tetanus. Currently, if you do get an infection with it, and that brings us back to our young organ child. Infections are treated preferentially with penicillin yeah. or with flagell a little bit, although you, I'm sure vancomycin would be used in a hospital setting.
1: Metronidazole and, and penicillin both work really, really well. The reason a lot of the time we'll use vanco is because the tetanus was introduced through a wound. So we're also worried about okay. other bacteria well, like Staph aureus.
3: This, that can about happen. 50%... Of the people who get infected with tetanus die, usually from respiratory failure. Mm -hmm. So this kid was one of the lucky ones.
1: And it's because he was in a, you know, he was in a developed country. Even in a developed country, country,
3: he he had to spend 57 days in a hospital. The large portion of those intubated Mm -hmm. because he was not able to breathe on his own. By comparison, A five day, a three to five day hospital stay is the norm for serious infections. And sometimes you're out in two or three days with just mild pneumonias if you're otherwise young and healthy. You can see just how serious this is. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the vaccine for this because, you know, that's rather important. And part of the reason it's important is, again, unlike many infectious diseases, recovery from naturally acquired tetanus doesn't result in immunity. So you can't say, oh, well, I had it as a kid, like chicken pox, and then you're okay for life. You can keep on getting tetanus over and over.
1: The reason for that is, you know, you actually have to build up not immunity against the bacteria, but immunity against the toxin. And that's really, it's like Building really up hard
3: a lifetime to resistance to iodine powder. Infection. <laughs> Never. To the early 1920s, when hilarious. French veterinarian Gaston Ramon. Uh, in the early 1920s, the fused formaldehyde. No yeah. one Sorry, tests like just, Gaston. Then invest like Gaston. Uh, no one studies uh, <laughs> to cure tetanus like Gaston. <laughs> As a scientist, he is very. Real thorough <laughs> checks all his work. That Gaston,
1: <laughs> I'm sure if I give you enough time, like if we do our, you know, our, our year end musical like we usually do, you'll you'll come up with a full on. I
3: have no so, French veterinarian <laughs> Gaston. Very right, Used formaldehyde to inactivate the tetanus toxin, and he created this shell like version called a toxoid and that could be injected, and that would help the body create an antitoxin to help protect against future tetanus. And this is what we require you to get every 10 years to protect against tetanus today. And often the vaccine is coupled with diphtheria, another bacteria Mm -hmm. that also does that kind of slow poisoning of you as an infectious means.
1: And the final component that's on it is uh, pertussis, which we also want to definitely... Um, So the
3: Childhood Immunization Schedule recommends five total doses of DTAP to protect against tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. And the first dose is given at two months of age, but they are spread out over a period of time.
1: It's a schedule that has kept tetanus out of this country for over... Fifty years. (laughs) Uh, I can't believe I have to say something that was 50 years old. Where old bacteria were returning
3: for revenge.
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, this is the problem, guys. I mean... Cl- there are so many things that you can wipe out, right? You can wipe out polio because it goes from human to human. You can wipe out smallpox. But Clostridium tetani lives in the soil. Giant it's always going to be the same back the dinosaurs.
3: But humanity's doom would come <laughs> from the dirt. Yeah. So let's move on from tetanus to our other lesser talked about Clostridium, which, as I said, can be eh big deal versus oh very big deal <laughs> uh and that of course is c perfringens <laughs> yeah. And i like to think of professor frink from the simpsons
1: no 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 see this is you didn't use mnemonics in Meso, did you <laughs> i did but Fine, i just
3: fringe pronunciation that's what it is but In both the United States and the United (laughs) Kingdom, C. perfringens, Freundleven, is the third most common cause of food poisoning, with poorly prepared (laughs) meat and poultry, ah, back to that sausage, uh, poorly prepared meat and poultry, the main culprits, and that's because, like the other (laughs) *Clostridium*, it produces spores. So spores, just like they can survive in honey or the dirt, they can also survive cooking, slow cooling, and unrefrigerated storage. And then you ingest them. And about, oh, eight to 16 hours later, you begin to experience a sudden watery diarrhea and abdominal pain. Usually, no fever, no vomiting. Uh, But on occasion, if we always tell you, if you see any blood in the stool, uh, come to the emergency room because it can cause intestinal tissues to die and result in an infection of the blood. Uh, but most of the time, if it's just a watery diarrhea, it resolves within 24 to 48 hours and you just need rest and fluids.
1: Yeah. So the the most common, you know, kind of course is this, is that you have that horrible, crampy diarrhea um, and that's it. Maybe a little bit of blood and you feel better. But Josh, this perfringens, clostridium perfringens, one of the principal agents of gas gangrene, so this was the bacteria that all
3: you know well, civil that's because war there's, soldiers feared. So there's five different strains uh, when they get shot of in the deeper fringes, and you know a rather deadly class. Right, right. He said, "Pop culture referencing later, depending yeah. on which <laughs> right, of the different nice, lethal nice. exotoxins it produces—alpha, beta, epsilon, and iota—or uh, enterotoxin will tell you what kind of strain you're getting. Mm-hmm. So one." causes, as we talked about, that very mild food poisoning, gas gangrene is associated with the alpha toxin. So the type A alpha toxin, which is characterized by rapid inflammation, how rapid? Well, that gas gangrene moniker isn't just being pulled out of the air, or is it? No, it's not. The bacteria are generating gas, like very quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So they can't process oxygen and produce carbon dioxide the way that other bacteria can. So they chew up in in the absence of oxygen, they'll chew up tissues, literally, literally destroy them. And then through the process of fermentation... They'll produce, you know, waste gases, and that's the gas that kind of forms in gas gangrene, or in really severe cases of that food poisoning version of Clostridium, where it'll actually cause that same now, gangrenous disease in the wall it's of It's
3: from your that intestine. same gas gangrene that perfringens gets its name. It comes from the Latin "per," meaning through, and "frango." to break into pieces or shatter because you get shattered at both ends. One, the bacteria eat through the muscle or tissue, so they go right through breaking it. And at the other end, you get these rapid, rapidly expanding, you know, kind of blisters and lesions. And those, because they are composed of a gas that's partial hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, a little bit of carbon dioxide, they also are prone to very quickly blistering out And spreading even more infection. So it's a dangerous disease and a very quick moving one uh, for which you need rapid surgery.
1: It's one of these things where, you know, we can offer antibiotics as, you know, medical professionals. We can say, oh, you know, we can start antibiotics on this patient. But if our neighborhood friendly surgeon doesn't come in and actually take out the dead tissue. Okay, antibiotics do not get into dead tissue. It only gets into vital vascular tissue. So uh, you have to actually go in and take out all that devitalized tissue. Make sure the edges are nice and clean, and then you can give antibiotics to kind of wipe out the rest of the bacteria. It's imagine like the, the, edge the dead tissue the is a fort
3: tissue. that the infection set itself up in, from which they can ride out to continuously attack you. And you can only bring in supplies along the bloodstream. Well, if there's no bloodstream, no antibiotics are getting in.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's the, of course, the, like the scariest version that you can possibly get. You know, that, that World War One or
3: Civil War soldier yeah, was, who was shot. I think the biggest cause of death in World War One was gangrene of one version or another. It was
1: huge, yeah. That, and we, we had no good... And even Uh, today, that's largely how it's treated
3: is, as we said, rapid, rapid debridement or cleaning of the area. Although sometimes in an attempt to slow the spread, uh, you can use oxygen chambers. So hyperbaric oxygen can be in help because if you flood these bacteria with an oxygen rich environment, they slow down. And they can't do as much damage, which means the area that gets surgically cleaned out is much smaller.
1: That's true. Yeah. So hyperbaric medicine, which we had talked about before, um, specifically to treat the bends, like if you're coming up too fast from deep underneath the ocean and, you know, you you get the bends like that. It has a lot of other good uses. One of them is... So you can use it
3: to stop them in their tracks that is going to bring us well there is one other kind of clostridium oh
1: the bad one yes yes it's been all over the news lately and to tell you the truth josh we should do a whole nother 80 plague specifically focusing on this little guy because as much as these other problems are global issues this last clostridium it's very close to home and uh is is becoming a greater and greater issue because of the way that we humans and, and, and it's doctors honestly especially so difficult to treat that
3: we put it right there in the name it's known as c difficile
1: c diff <laughs> clostridium difficile because when you have wiped out all of the bacteria in the gut by using broad spectrum antibiotics, you know, for, for trying to treat someone because maybe they have a pneumonia or a wound infection or any other number of things. When you've also wiped out all the bacteria in the gut from these broad spectrum antimicrobials, all the the only one that's left
3: is and the most of course, difficult having one. exhausted antibiotics in many cases, CDs. we are now turning back to older remedies, some so old that they were used in ancient China over 1700 yeah. years ago. If you have ever heard of yellow soup, <laughs> it was a rather yeah. unique ancient Chinese recipe.
1: Oh, no. Well, first of all, Josh, we should say, for those of you who, guys who don't know, by and large, Clostridium difficile or C. diff diarrhea is caused when, usually when antibiotics are, are overused and then you get a bad colitis. So you have a diarrhea with blood in it and lots of pain and cramps and you are left, uh, you know, with this overgrowth of clostridium um, that's, you know, hurting your intestines. And our old way of doing things was to use uh, like oral metronidazole or vancomycin right. to and try to wipe it the out. Last, and that's still I a first-line treatment. In 15
3: years, a non-antibiotic treatment has come back into practice. It's tough to say gained favor because no one who is re- the recipient is really enthusiastic about it. Uh, but <laughs> before we get to that... Let's talk. Let's talk about the recipe for yellow soup. Um, <laughs> our our ancient Chinese our ancient Chinese recipe. Oh, it'd okay. be you know taken uh, by mouth. This is going to be gross, just like soup. Uh, yeah, and it was made from a number of different ingredients, still sold in many Chinese pharmacies today, um, except for one: dried slash fermented stool from a former healthy person. So of course we are seeing yeah. <laughs> the return of fecal transplants and they are yeah. fun to talk about, but I don't, I don't want to get myself all ramped up this close to the end yeah. of an episode. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, and and I actually, I'd love to bring on an expert to talk about FMT because it is a field in and of itself. Um, we're not only learning about how you can restore normal uh, microbiome and kind of, You know, get the, the C. diff drowned out from there. We also are learning what the microbiome from the donor can do to the, uh, to the recipient. And so, oh, if you get it from an obese donor, you have the chance of getting obesity or screening your donors before you get an F.
3: You have to take, you have to take this shit seriously.
1: <laughs> you do and it's considered viable tissue and it's very very important to treat with uh, with the same it's respect
3: a real that shitty you would organ transplant. if you're
1: transplanting like a heart or lungs or kidneys or something like this <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It made famous recently uh, by a comedian that I love, actually, who's Tig Notaro. In that show, she got a fecal transplant from her stepdad. Uh,
3: That's it for this week's Around the World in 80 Plagues. 80 Plagues. Oh, we're so poor, we can't even afford that sound effect. (laughs) But we do have a new Just the Tip from our travel correspondent, Sarah. She's been off and around the world on numerous trips lately, and she left us with a little tidbit. Let's take a listen to it.
2: Hello, it's your travel correspondent, Sarah. Some of you might be wondering where the best European vacation might be you would like to experience the culture and the art and the food, well, can I recommend Buenos Aires, Argentina? It feels exactly like you're in Europe, except the weather is nice, the prices are cheap, and there's no one trying to sell you a selfie stick every time you walk five yards. You can stay in the hip districts of either Ricolada or Palermo. No matter where you go, there's plenty of art. The food is amazing, You can eat like a king, drink all the red wine you like. There's cafes, cocktail bars, everywhere. It's fantastic. If you're a gourmand and you're looking for a relaxing place to go, I recommend Buenos Aires all the way. And then if you're feeling a little bit adventurous, there's a great ferry. You can go right over to Montevideo in Uruguay and get the beach scene in. Uh, while I was there, I took in a winery tour, and it was fantastic. It was just like going to a, a zoo with all the animals and miles and miles of grape fields. It was fantastic. This is honestly the most relaxing vacation I've ever been on, and I'd recommend it to everyone. Go down to Buenos Aires and Montevideo. Have fun.
3: Next stop, Argentina, where it is, uh-huh. how do you say, I don't know, ah, yes, too sexy. <laughs> um, so uh, that's Argentina it for is this week. Though. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all my co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye,
1: everybody.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.